Welcome back to the Fit Minute Podcast, fitness for real people, with your host, Gabrielle Mazar. Gabrielle Mazar. On today's episode, Gabrielle interviews Dr. Glenn Livingston, a veteran psychologist and author of Never Binge Again. He wrote his book based on his own personal journey from obesity and binge eating to maintaining a normal, healthy weight and having a much more lighthearted relationship with food. And now here's your host, personal trainer and stretch therapist, Gabrielle Mazar. Gabrielle Mazar. Welcome back to the Fit Minute Podcast, Fitness for Real People. I'm your host, Gabby Mazar. And on today's episode, I have Dr. Uh, Dr. Glenn Livingston, psychologist and former CEO of a multi-million dollar uh, food industry uh, company. And he is on the show today to discuss Never Binge Again. He is a psycho- uh, psychologist and we'll be discussing a little bit about binge eating. So welcome to the show today. Thank you. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. I've been looking forward to that. And um, yes, that, I was not the CEO of a multi-million dollar food industry company, but a consulting company for the food industry. Consulting um, company, yes. So I, I didn't run one of the big food manufacturers or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, tell us a little bit about yourself then. So you consulted for uh, food industry companies. Um so you have a lot of experience in that and in the food industry, you worked a lot with people um, with food addiction, food um, binge eating, and tell us all about what you've experienced yeah, and sure. went into that in your experience. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so I, I was an advertising research consultant for the food industry um, and the pharmaceutical industry way, way back in the 90s for the most part. And um, I was kind of on the wrong side of the war. I was helping them sell their hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and excitotoxins and everything aimed at the reptilian brain without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. Um, you know, a bunch of, um, for lack of a better term, fat cats in white suits with mustaches laughing to the bank when when you're looking for the love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container. So that that's what I did. I, I was a clinical psychologist by training and I did have a clinical practice too. My wife at the time, she traveled for business all the time. And so we didn't have kids and I didn't commute. So I had a lot of time on my hands. So I had a child and family practice and I had my consulting practice. I didn't work with eating disordered clients because I was one myself. So I I was doing marital and family work. And, um, you know, the bigger part of my story has to do with my journey through my own addiction and to a eventual solution, which involved what I knew mm-hmm. from working at the food industry and, and seeing some of that. Um, you know, I, li- I like to say if you've ever been in Woodbury, New York, and you went to the, the Woodbury Country Deli and they were out of pizza or Pop-Tarts, there's a really good chance I was there before you um, <laughs> in the 90s anyway, the 80s and 90s. A- and, um, y- you know, I... I when I was 17 or 18, I figured out that if I worked out a couple of hours a day, I could eat whatever I wanted to because I'm, I'm 6'4". I've got a modestly muscular build just genetically. I was kind of lucky like that. Um, and I could eat, you know, five or 10,000 calories a day. It didn't seem to affect me. Um, and I thought that was great. Whole pizzas, boxes of muffins, boxes of chocolate bars, boxes of Pop-Tarts and whatever you can imagine. If it wasn't nailed down, I was on it. And I thought it was great. 
but when I was 22 or 23 and I was married and I was commuting two hours a day each direction to see patients and go to graduate school, it was another story. And I, it started to catch up with me. And I found that I couldn't adjust. I didn't have the time to work out like that anymore. And my metabolism was slowing down, but I, I couldn't adjust. The food had a hold of me. I'd gotten used to these, these binges. And, um, you know, being a psychologist from a family of 17 psychotherapists, um, I thought that it must be a psychological problem. I figured there, there's probably a hole in my heart. And if I could just fill the hole in my heart, then I'd stop trying to fill the hole in my stomach. And, and so I went to the best therapists. I went to Overeaters Anonymous. I went to psychiatrists and took medication for a while. I saw nutritionists, dietitians, anything you could imagine. And it was a very soulful journey. I feel like it made me a more compassionate person. Um, it made me love myself more, but it didn't really fix the food problem. I get a little thinner and then a lot fatter and a little thinner and a lot fatter. Um, at my worst, I was probably almost 300 pounds. I, I stopped weighing myself at 257, but I just kept eating. And um, it was awful. What, mm -hmm. And more so than the weight, because I'm, I'm 6'4", I could carry some weight. Um, more so than the weight, the obsession, the think, sitting with a patient and thinking, you know, when's the next time I can get to the deli and dislodge my jaw? When, when can I get the next pizza? As opposed to concentrating on someone who could be suicidal or dealing with the aftermath of an affair. And, and being a great psychologist was really important to me. So it really bothered me on that level, um, as did the weight and a lot of associated medical things. Um, long story short, after many years of searching like that, I began to think that I was going to have to take a different paradigm. It wasn't going to be so much of a love myself thin paradigm, but more like um like being the alpha wolf of my own brain. Um, and when the alpha wolf is challenged for leadership, it doesn't say, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug, right? It growls and it snarls and it says, get back in line or I'll kill you. Mm -hmm. And I thought, maybe I have to assert my superiority in some way because the food industry is doing what it's doing. That's an external force, has nothing to do with the fact that I was in a bad marriage or my mama didn't love me or anything like that. The advertising industry, um, and there are five to 7,000 messages beamed at us every year over the airwaves and the internet about food. How many of them do you think are about eating more fruits and vegetables? Not, not that many. Um, may, maybe a dozen, right? Maybe. So, so, yeah, <laughs> maybe. Um, so these are like very powerful external forces. And then I started reading a little bit about neurology and some alternative addiction treatment literature, um, uh, a book called Rational Recovery in particular by Jack Trimpey. And I recognize that the reptilian brain doesn't know love. And it's the reptilian brain that's being targeted when it comes to food addiction. When the reptilian brain sees something in the environment, it says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? It's like a really bad college drinking game. It's like eat, mate, or kill. Mm -hmm. It's the mammalian brain on top of that that says, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact is that going to have on your tribe, on the people that you love, on your family. And then the neocortex on top of that says, wait, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact does that have on your long-term goals? Like weight loss and fitness and you know all kinds of other things too. And so the reptilian brain doesn't know love. So here I am trying to love myself then, but this emergency response system, and that's really what happens when people's best judgment is overridden when they're looking at a chocolate bar, um, 
the the emergency response system, the seat of the feast and famine response, the seat of the um, you know fight or flight response. Here it was saying there's an emergency. It doesn't care about love. Love has nothing to do with it. But I'm trying to love myself then. So I said, okay. I, I, I did this big study for myself. I did a 40,000 person study on the internet when clicks were cheap. I was trying to figure out the missing pieces of the puzzle. This is back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And, um, and I discovered that there were particular foods that people gravitated to depending upon the particular way that they were stressed. Um, one of the particular ways that they were stressed was by going to chocolate and people who felt lonely or brokenhearted or a little depressed tended to go towards chocolate. Mm -hmm. People who felt um, stressed at work would go to chips and crunchy, salty things. And people who felt stressed at home would go to like bread and bagels and pasta and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I was a chocolate person. My binges always started with chocolate and they progressed other things later. And so I called my mom and I said, mom, I found this really interesting thing. And you're a therapist also. And you raised me. Why, and you also have trouble with chocolate. Why do we go to chocolate when we, I mean, it says that it's because we're feeling lonely or brokenhearted. And I am kind of, I wasn't really happy in, in the marriage. But why chocolate? What happened? And she gets this horrible look on her face. And she says, honey, I am so sorry. But when you were one year old in 1965, your dad, my husband, was the captain in the army. And they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And I was terrified. We were trying to get pregnant with your sister. And I thought I'm going to be an army widow with two small kids. At the same time, my father had just gotten out of prison and I didn't know where he was for two years. I didn't know he was guilty and I was devastated. I was depressed. So half the time when you came running to me for love or healthy food or to play, I didn't have the wherewithal to give it to you. So I kept a chocolate bottle of Bosco syrup in a refrigerator on the floor. And I'd say, honey, go get your Bosco. And you'd go crawling over to the Bosco. You'd take it out of the refrigerator. You'd open the bottle. You'd suck on the cap. And you'd go into a chocolate sugar coma. Now, if this was a movie, at this point, mom and I would have a big hug and a big cry. And neither of us would have trouble with chocolate again, right? Right. The opposite happened. I mean, we had a nice moment. I felt forgiving of myself. I learned a lot about my mom from that conversation. Um and, and the self-hatred went away, but the binging got worse, particularly on chocolate, because it was like there was this crazy voice in my head, this voice of justification, and it started saying things like, um, you know what, Glenn, you're right. Our mama didn't love us enough, and she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in our heart. And until you can get out of this marriage and find the love of your life, you're going to have to go right on filling up with chocolate. Yippee, let's go get some right now. <laughs> And uh, as crazy as it sounds, that's that's kind of what was going on. And at that point, I had this thought. I said, maybe you don't have to put out the fire. Like if the emotional conflict is the fire, maybe the fire can burn like it does in a good fireplace in the living room, as long as there are no holes in the fireplace. And that becomes an asset and not a liability. People gather around a fire and they hug and they laugh and they cry and they you know share memories. Maybe what's happening is there's this voice of justification that's poking holes in the fireplace. And so a couple of ashes are getting on and burning down the house. So I did a really crazy thing. And I was not going to be public about this. This was not what I was going to teach. This was just how does Glenn stop eating, you know, 10,000 calories in a day, right? Mm -hmm. And, okay, this is a little embarrassing because I'm a sophisticated psychologist with all these credentials and stuff. But um, 
I decided that I was going to draw a really clear line in the sand so I would know when that reptilian brain was active. Because if it was asking me to break the line, I would know. So I said, I'm never going to have chocolate on a weekday again. That was my first rule. And then if I was in a Starbucks and there was a you know big hairy chocolate bar at the counter and I heard this little voice in my head saying, Norklin, you worked out hard enough. One chocolate bar is not going to kill you. You won't get any weight. And you can just start again tomorrow. It'll be just as easy. I would say, whoa, wait a minute. That's not me. This is so embarrassing. That's not me. That's my inner pig. My, uh, was my, my pseudonym for the reptilian brain and this whole system, you don't have to call it a pig. It's just what <laughs> I did. Um, I said, that's my inner pig. I don't, chocolate on a weekday is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. As ridiculous as that sounds, it would wake me up at the moment of impulse and give me those extra microseconds to make the right decision, which initially I didn't do all the time, but I was awake. I, it no longer felt like this mysterious force. It no longer felt like I had all these emotional conflicts that I had to solve first. It was just, no, my, my pig wants that. I don't want that. And over time, I learned that I could adjust rules to be rules that I could really live with. And I learned it was more important for me to be in control than to necessarily lose the weight so quickly. Um, as long as the doctor's not telling you to lose weight quickly, it seems like the control was more important. Mm -hmm. And then over time, I also learned how to step out of that reptilian brand, how to turn off the emergency response system that says, you know, just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt and who cares about my diet and everything like that. Um, I would take a 7-Eleven breath. Lori Hammond calls these 7-Eleven breaths. She would breathe in for a count of seven and out for a count of 11. As soon as I knew the pig was awake, I would do that because that signals your brain that there's no emergency. And the part of the brain that says we need the chocolate now is the emergency response system, the sympathetic nervous system that gets you all revved up for action, like running from a hungry bear. But when you breathe in for a count of seven and out for a count of 11, the brain says, oh, there must be no hungry bear because if there was, you'd have to be right. running as fast as you can. So I would take a couple of 7-Eleven breaths and that would calm me down. Um, then I would carry around a pen and paper and I'd write down exactly what the pig was saying. Writing is an upper brain activity. It's part of, part of the you know executive function and uh, binging is lower brain activity. So that was another way to get out of the lower brain and into my, into my you know, rational brain, so to speak. Then I'd say, so, let, so let's just simplify it for argument's sake, say the pig say, well, it'll be just as easy to start tomorrow. Then I'd ask myself, how is the pig wrong? How is it lying to me? Well, it seems like it would be just as easy to start tomorrow. And I did work out hard enough. I probably wouldn't gain weight if it was just one chocolate bar. But we both know it's not going to be just one chocolate bar. And the way the brain works, the principles of neuroplasticity say, if I have the craving today and I reward it, I'll be more likely to have the craving tomorrow and more likely to re reward it tomorrow. Not only the craving, but the thought. If I have the thought, just start tomorrow today, and I follow that thought with a chocolate bar, I'm more likely to have the thought, just start tomorrow, tomorrow, which is why everything cycles down, why everybody says, well, I'll start tomorrow and they never do, because Monday never comes, right? Yes, um, definitely. So that, I mean, that's my story. I, I kept the journal for eight years and all the things my pig said and why it was wrong. And it was a very private thing. And when I was getting divorced, 
um, this was about six years ago now, I seven years ago, I um, I was a minor partner in a publishing company from my previous business contacts. And the CEO called me and said, hey, Glenn, we have to write a book. We need to write our own book so we can market it ourselves and show other offers, more valuable offers that we know what we're doing. And I said, well, I've got this crazy journal. And he said, perfect, send it to me. I've turned it into a book and send it to me. I took the summer, I turned it into a book. I got a little feedback, I sent it to him. And he calls me back and he goes, two weeks later, calls me back and he says, Glenn, donuts are pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And he stopped having donuts and he proceeded to work with all kinds of other rules and he lost almost hundred pounds. Um, along the way, we published the book it took off beyond my wildest dreams. Like this is out of a movie or something like that. You know, we have, we might have a million and a half readers, something like that, 15,000 reviews, more, more than the Da Vinci Code. Um, it's crazy. And um, so now I could be in a bookstore and people don't really know my name, but they sometimes point at me and go, pig guy, pig guy. <laughs> pig guy. <laughs> so that, that that's my story. And um, I've written six more books about binge eating and, um, that's what I do now. I, I walk around helping people to stop overeating by considering that they might want to separate their reptilian brain from their rational self. So essentially what you're doing is retraining your brain, retraining your brain from habits, you know, like what your mother did was train you from a very, very young age that chocolate was a soothing thing so that's what you went to which is is very very normal i mean it's something that that most parents do to all kids i mean <laughs> not necessarily just with chocolate but you know with with donuts with chips with with blankets oh yeah with, oh, it's, you know it's an I mean, understandable it's, it's thing it happens very 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 normal so yeah. you know you can understand so you, you're basically just retraining your brain to do something different and mm -hmm. It's noticing those little habits and those little things. My question is, how do you know, how do you recognize when you're doing those things? I think it's difficult for people to, to stop and think, oh, I'm doing it. Like, you know, when you're, when you're at Starbucks and you're getting, you know, whatever your skinny latte or whatever it is. And then you go, Oh, I'll have a chocolate bar. I think it's difficult for people to stop and recognize and go, Oh, I'm getting a chocolate bar. Do I need that chocolate bar? And why am I getting that chocolate bar? And do I need it today? And then write it down. I think that's the hardest part about it. Mm -hmm. And then writing it down and doing it every single day. How did you get to that point where you, cause you said at first you didn't do it every day and at first you didn't recognize it every time. How did you get to that point where you did? So it's a very astute observation. Like how, how do you create that space between stimulus and response? Mm -hmm. um, this is the reason it's important to have at least one hard and fast rule that defines a very clear boundary mm -hmm. between what you define as healthy behavior and what's over the line. It's kind of like drawing a bullseye for yourself so that you know if you miss the bullseye by how much and what direction, what adjustments do you need to make. Um, our culture says just eat well 90% of the time and indulge yourself 10% of the time, which is a great idea in theory, but it doesn't give you this power. Um, and 
it also wears down your willpower because you have to constantly make decisions. Every time I'm in front of a chocolate bar, I have to decide, is this part of the 90% or the 10%, right? You want your decisions about your difficult food areas to have been made for you by your higher self beforehand. So that's one thing is you make a very clear, um, a very clear line on the sand. Then you need to reinforce that line on the sand by reading it constantly in the beginning. So I'll tell people to read the rule out loud three times a day, set an alarm, read it out loud three times a day so that it's very, very salient. And you define your destructive self. This is a game. It's kind of like a, a part of the game you play. You define your destructive self as any thought, feeling, or impulse that suggests that you should break, you could cross that line for any reason whatsoever. So you're bringing the rule to salience and consciousness um, all day long and only in the beginning, only for a month or two until it's really there. Mm -hmm. And then you're defining the activity of that reptilian brain as anything that suggests that you cross the line. So now you have this kind of wait a minute response when you realize you're about to break that rule that you just read this morning, you just reminded yourself about a little while ago. Um, that, that's how you do it in the beginning. Sometimes you can also, um, you know, let's say that you tend to break it by the refrigerator. So you could stand by the refrigerator and read a rule and maybe you put a particular picture that you look at on the refrigerator while you're reading the rule. And that way, when you walk to the refrigerator, that little picture triggers that thought. You're right reminding away. yourself as you're yeah. standing there. Yeah. 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 It's not, not as hard as you think when you make it important to you to do that. Um, but you also, um, I tell people that every rule that you might make in Never Binge Again is implicitly preceded by the words consciously and purposefully. So if I say, I will never eat chocolate on a weekday again, what I really mean is I will never consciously and purposefully eat chocolate on a weekday. What that does is it kind of protects you from making those accidental mistakes that occur during the learning process. Um, if you wake up and find that you made a mistake, then you haven't really broken your rule. But if you do it again right then, then you've broken the rule. And that just teaches yourself to consciously and purposefully comply with the rule. So when we talk about like binging, you know, a, a lot of people associate binging to with like sitting and eating, 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 eating. When, mm -hmm. when you talk about binging, is, is that kind of what you're thinking about too? Or are you talking about binging as in just overeating in general? Well, um, these systems are designed to help anyone who occasionally eats occasionally against their own best judgment all the way to people who feel like they can't stop eating from morning to night. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the DSM-5 definition of binge eating is very precise and only applies to somewhere between 2 and 4% of the population. Mm -hmm. It has to do with the frequency of very severe overeating episodes, feelings of self-disgust and self-hatred afterwards. And it's, it's a discrete diagnostic entity. And the reason it's good that they do that is because um, there are some medications that seem to help a little bit and it can be studied more discreetly and diagnostically. But um, what about, there's a large discrepancy between that two to 4%. I read an article for psychology today about this. Um, there's a large discrepancy between that two or 4% and the 40% of people in our country that are obese, right? right? And, and the epidemic of diabetes and cardiovascular disease and everything that's happening because of that. And so I really, even though my book is called Never Binge Again, and it applies to binge eaters, I, I don't offer it as a treatment. 
Like I'm not actually practicing as a psychologist when I'm offering this. I offer it as education and coaching because I'm much more interested in helping the broad swath of society who's overeating beyond their best judgment and is frankly dealing with obesity and health problems because of it. Yeah. And I, and overeating in general, I think most people don't, a lot of people don't even realize that they're overeating also. I think, yeah, I just sat with a couple of, of kids the other day and kind of talked about um, portion sizes and what a portion size is and the portion size of meat, the portion size of rice, macaroni and pasta and what they're eating. And, you know, their eyes were like, what, you know, uh-huh. I think, that people don't necessarily understand that either. So understanding that you're overeating is something also. So, you know, letting people know that binging necessarily and not in the terms of that 2%, overeating can lead to binging because it is, you know, it's a slippery slope because you're, you're, you're in that obesity range. It's, it's, overeating is is definitely it's tough because you you want to you want to be able to control what you're eating but you're not necessarily knowing what you're doing and most people don't know portion sizes i guess is my point most people don't most know people that, don't know portion- <laughs> that you know people- when you're eating a candy bar you know or a reese's peanut butter cup the whole like king size is half of that you know it's and they've gotten progressively larger as yes. the years have gone by, <laughs> and our society supports us to slowly kill ourselves with food. Right. And, and the additional stress that's imposed by the constant demand for attention and the number of, you know, um, Facebook posts and scene changes in the movies and on TV and, um, you know, demands from email and everything like that, it really impinges upon our willpower and we're compensating by eating more and more and more and more. And the food industry is getting better at turning off our hungry and full signals. The advertising industry is getting better at making us think that the vital nutrients we need to survive are in their wares and not in what nature has to offer. Um, It's, it's a, it's a bad situation, but there, there is a defense. There is a defense. Yeah. So your never binge again, basically is written from your own experience and your journals. Explain a little bit what exactly is in it and how it helps people. Well, um, it, it talks about the overall structure. It's written kind of like an allegory of good versus evil because it was me versus my pig, my mm-hmm. higher self versus my lower self the whole time. And um, people say it's really funny. I didn't write it to be funny, <laughs> but I, I guess... You know, I think there's a sense of relief people have when they hear all the different things that my pig said and their pig is saying it also. Um, So it's written like an allegory to get you charged up and motivated to separate your higher self from your lower self and make, you know, kind of choose the angel on your shoulder as opposed to the devil on your shoulder more frequently. Um, it, It talks about the procedure in more detail, about calming yourself down and being able to make the right choice. What um, the piece that I didn't talk about yet was that it's not just this cognitive operation that helps you make the right choice, but it's reorienting your survival drive from the error that it's making. You know, gee, I really need that bag of chips right now. That's where the good stuff is to what it might genuinely need. So when when I stopped eating chocolate, I didn't just stop eating chocolate. I also would start having 
these uh, banana kale smoothies. I tried a whole bunch of different things and I had to find something that really nutrified my body. And, you know, over time, I found I would crave the banana kale smoothies instead of the chocolate. So there is a figuring out what your body genuinely needs at mm -hmm. those times. And then there's also um, psychologically, sometimes there are um, psychological situations that can create the craving, like particularly having to make an overwhelming number of decisions over the course of the day tends to wear people's willpower down. Like there are experiments where we make people do math problems and we find they eat more marsh marshmallows after they do math problems than the group that doesn't have to do the math problems. Um, it's kind of funny, but if you think about it, every, every email is another decision, right? Do I spam it? Do I delete it? Do I forward it? Do I delegate it? Do I respond to it? Do I defer it? Um, our brains are working hard all day long and that wears down our capacity for rational thought and decision-making in the moment of impulse. So sometimes you just have to install two 10-minute breaks a day. Sometimes that makes all the difference. Sometimes you like need to put your phone down and if you have to go to the bathroom where nobody's going to bother you, for five minutes and go to the bathroom and sit in the toilet for five minutes and think. Um, usually walking outside is a lot nicer than going to the bathroom. Right. <laughs> but you, you do what you do what you gotta do. So yeah. yeah. So how can people find your book? Um, I have a free copy for you in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. Um, if you go to neverbingeagain.com and click on the big red button and sign up for the email bonus list, the reader list. You'll get a free copy of the book in digital format. You'll also be led to where you could buy it in physical format or audible format if you want to. And I will also give you a set of food plan starter templates. So we put a lot of thought up. I'm kind of a whole foods person myself, but um, we work with people across all dietary philosophies. So we set up templates for ketogenic. We set up templates for point counters, calorie counters. You can see how that might work. Um, and because I know it sounds really weird that Gabby's got this doctor on who has a pig inside of him, and it sounds kind of <laughs> cruel and abstract. I recorded a set of coaching sessions. Um, this is all free, full-length coaching sessions. So you can see how this works in practice. And it's a very compassionate, simple, easy process that takes people from um, feeling overwhelmed and despairing and powerless and helpless about food to feeling in control and confident and enthusiastic about their future in, in just one session. It gives people back control. So neverbingeagain.com, click the big red button. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to leave our listeners with today? Um, Jim Rohn said a life of discipline is easier than a life of regret. And I, I definitely land on that side of the equation. I also think that um, discipline is the foundation for freedom. Some people think it is the antithesis of freedom, but you know, a jazz pianist can't express their soul if they didn't have the discipline to practice their scales beforehand. A, you can't expand your radius of lo locomotion and drive all over the country if it weren't for the discipline of the engineers that worked it out that your car turns 30 degrees when you turn the steering wheel 30 degrees. Um, without discipline, there is no freedom. Peter McWilliams said, you can have anything you want, but you can't have everything you want. Discipline is really the foundation of freedom. So choose one simple rule, 
come up with a name for your reptilian brain, listen for your reptilian brain to try to get you to break it, ask, why is that thing rock? You'll be amazed at how that begins to give you your power back. Go to neverbenchagain.com, click on the big red button and um, download the free book. You'll get how this works. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, hopefully people will download your book and recognize their pig inside of them. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Thanks everyone for listening and we will see you all next week. Thank you so much for listening to the Fit Minute Podcast, Fitness for Real People, with your host, Gabrielle Mazar. If you would like more information on today's episode, you can find it in the show notes and on Gabrielle's website at www.destinationfitcations.com. Visit to keep an eye out for upcoming fitcations. Be sure to share the show, give this podcast a review, and subscribe so you won't miss an episode. Join us next week to hear more stories from people just like you. This has been the Fit Minute Podcast, Fitness for Real People with Gabrielle Mazar.